You can't help but be an emotional being. It's just built in. You can't help but be a, a being that sometimes gets angry. It's just built in. But what you can do is figure out ways to make the emotions work for you, make the anger work for you. Can Roman Stoics from thousands of years ago teach you and me a thing or two about dealing with setbacks, insults, grief, or anger? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VEDEX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and William Irvine, a philosophy professor and author of The Stoic Challenge, A Philosopher's Guide to Becoming Tougher, Calmer, and More Resilient, is here to say, yes, ancient philosophy can help us today. Full disclosure, I love his books already, so hopefully I don't fanboy too much here. But first, let's let Irvine explain why his style of philosophy is a little different, maybe a lot different, from the philosophy you saw in college, that highly theoretical academic stuff. It's an interesting thing, but if you look at most academic philosophers, so I am a a college professor teaching philosophy. Your career typically goes through the first stage where you you have to publish scholarly articles and books in order to get tenure and then in order to get promoted. And then the interesting question is, what do you do then? So uh, <laughs> I reached a stage where, you know, I'm a full professor. There are no promotions possible. <laughs> so it's an interesting degree of freedom that you have because you also, in theory, can explore all sorts of outrageous topics. I don't know if that's true anymore in recent uh, years, but in theory, that's the case. And then you have this job freedom of, you know, you can't go uh, any higher. And because you've got tenure, you're kind of stuck there. So what I did is, uh, you know, I thought back to what brought me into philosophy to begin with. And that is there were philosophers who were giving people advice on how to better uh, and more productively live their lives. The philosophers back then, this would be in first century BC to uh, first century AD. I'll just stick, stick with the old ones. So if you look back at what they were doing, they weren't writing scholarly publications to be uh, published in scholarly journals. They were trying to reach a general audience with information and advice that would be useful to people in a general audience. Uh, they wore several hats. For instance, the Stoic philosophers, who are my uh, my favorites, also were had an interest in science, also had an interest in logic. In fact, they were the experts on propositional logic, which is the kind of logic that makes modern computers work. But they also had this this interest in human psychology, and in particular, on the emotions we experience and how those emotions can negatively affect the life we live. And they came up with some brilliant psychological strategies for how to avoid the negative emotions. Those are the ones like anger, fear, anxiety, regret, grief, and at the same time, increase your chances of experiencing positive emotions like feelings of delight, a sense of awe, feelings of joy. So I decided what I was going to do is I was going to do philosophy the way the ancient philosophers did. (laughs) Okay. So I'm out to reach for a very broad audience. And to your listeners, let me say this. 
you know, a lot of philosophy books that you could read, you need to have a major in philosophy before you can understand them. But the books I write are very intentionally not aimed at that market at all. They're written at a level where somebody can pick it up knowing absolutely zero about philosophy and stoicism. And from the early pages, just build an understanding of those things. So, yeah, you know, when neighbors ask, I say, you know, should you read um, philosophy books? Well, you know, I I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, there are a subgroup of philosophers doing the kind of thing I'm doing. And, you know, if, if a fellow philosopher accuses me of not really doing philosophy, I like to remind him of what the philosophers he's talking about used to be doing, and then point out that that's what I was doing. But if what I was doing wasn't really philosophy, then what they were doing wasn't really philosophy. And so uh, so that's a fun thing to do, fun strategy to use in a conversation. There's so many rabbit holes I could go down there, but I'm going to stick to the book. So this book is called The Stoic Challenge. And somebody, I know there has been a renaissance in the past I don't know, five or six years where there have been a couple of writers who have looked back to the ancient Stoics, either pulling stuff out of Stoicism for sort of personal productivity and life hacking help, and then people who keep it a little closer to the philosophy, but are still trying to present practical advice. But there seems to be this emphasis on practical advice from the Stoics. And so maybe people don't have this problem with this misconception, but I think Stoic The only way people were using that word for many decades before recently was not the capital S Stoic of the philosophers, but the lowercase Stoic, which meant things don't bother them. They're uncaring. They're unemotional. They're sort of, you know, always calm and unperturbed by everything. And some of that fits in with the philosophy and some of it doesn't. So do you have kind of um, an elevator speech you give to explain to people what the difference might be between what they understand as lowercase s stoicism and capital stoicism out of philosophy. Yeah, I have an elevator speech, but it'll only work <laughs> if we're going to the hundredth floor in a slow elevator. <laughs> okay, I'll take it, whatever well, you got. <laughs> I'll give you my uh, speeded up version here. Okay. So, yeah, most people, when you say, and I don't broadcast it, but you know, if people realize I do stoic philosophy, they say, well, doesn't that mean you're supposed to be kind of a glum and grimly take whatever life can throw at you because their thought is because you're not that way, right? I hope I come off as a somewhat cheerful individual, and that is true to the core of Stoicism. So the Stoics did not believe that you should grimly contain your emotions. They believed uh, that you should avoid negative emotions and embrace positive emotions. And they came up with, like I said, these brilliant strategies for avoiding the negative emotions. So it isn't that you just bottle them up and fight through. It's that you nip them in the bud or prevent them from happening in the first place. So that's what's brilliant about it. And in fact, in the ancient world, the interesting thing is if you look at the the Stoics themselves, and by Stoics, I typically mean uh, Roman Stoics because These are people like uh, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, because their own presentation of Stoicism resonates nicely with modern individuals. It still reads well. You know, you can hear what they're saying and you can say, we don't have the Colosseum anymore, but we still have (laughs) the same sorts of, of issues. And the Greeks, Stoics and Stoicism was created in Greece in 300 BC, and Their writings are largely lost. So I focus on the Roman Stoics 
And they just came up with this brilliant stuff. Do you want to live a life where you're relatively free of negative emotions? And the obvious answer is, well, yeah, because those are the ones that give us the trouble, right? Usually the bad things that happen to us in life are bad, but we make them even worse because we let them trigger within us a flood of negative emotions. So, and you read descriptions of these uh, Roman Stoic philosophers, and they come across as a bunch of cheerful individuals, you know, always looking for the silver lining, always looking for a, a bright spot in the sky, always appreciating what they had instead of moaning about the things they didn't have. So uh, most people, I understand where I used to have that feeling about Stoics, you know, and you hear about that and you say, yuck, why would anybody want to do that? But it's just the, the polar opposite. The truth is just the opposite of that. So in my writing, I distinguish between lowercase s Stoics, and this is what most people think of, these glum individuals, and uppercase s Stoics. And these are the, these individuals who use these psychological strategies to uh, deal with the challenges life throws at them. And not to say that the strategies themselves, maybe the impression, the realistic impression people could have about the work that comes with this is it does require effort and discipline to redirect thoughts and to imagine things in moments of high emotion. So it, it does take work and discipline. And I don't think veterinarians and generally many people are averse to work and discipline. Here's you know another part of my pitch. Okay. I say that you can learn enough about stoicism to know whether it's going to work for you over the course of a three-day weekend. We just had one of those last weekend, right? So you get Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday off. A few uh, Friday evening, started right. reading uh, an introduction to Stoicism and started picking up some of the basic principles. The interesting thing is you can test drive the strategies very easily. So it's not like Zen Buddhism where you have to do a three-week retreat before you even have a shot at doing something. Now you can do it at home. You can do these exercises. And you'll very quickly find out whether they're effective for you or whether they're uh, not working for you. And if they're not working for you, hey, move on. You go to whatever the next uh, candidate is for a philosophy of life. But in a surprising number of cases, people find they do work. They take a little bit of effort to do, but not a whole lot of effort. In fact, you, you, if you're interested here, uh, we can do a two-minute introduction to Stoic practice, and then you'll know. You'll kind of get it. So it's got a very low cost of entry. Before I became a practicing Stoic, I thought I wanted to be a Zen Buddhist. And Zen Buddhism has a very high price of entry. I mean, lots of meditation, a long period of months, years, decades before it either works for you or it doesn't, before you have your moment of enlightenment. Stoicism, three-day weekend. You'll know. <laughs> You don't have to uh, shave your head. You don't have to go around wearing, you know, sackcloth or whatever. And in fact, the world needn't even know that you tried. It's worth a try because it can dramatically change the future course of your life. And you can start realizing, you know, life isn't as bad as uh, I might have imagined. It's so funny that you mentioned the Zen Buddhism. I feel like Stoicism and Buddhism are things I have been studying the past few years. The exciting thing about Zen Buddhism, it sort of introduces you to the possibility that these thoughts and feelings you have are not you. So you start observing them at a distance. And I feel like because they're asking you, 
to not associate yourself with your thinking, that is extremely difficult to do. And it takes time to sort through that. Whereas Stoicism doesn't say, this is not your thoughts. You don't have to take the step of sorting through all your thoughts and feelings. Take them one at a time as they come. And so it's it does seem more accessible that way. I would add this, that Zen Buddhism and Stoicism are like a chocolate and coffee. They're <laughs> beautifully complementary. And I would also encourage anybody who is, is interested in understanding the human uh, condition to try a Zen exercise known as Zazen, where you find a, a quiet place. You sit. You don't have to sit on the floor. You can if you want. You can sit in a chair. And then without distractions, this means you're going to have to turn off your cell phone, all right, oh. completely. <laughs> without distractions, you're going to sit there and you're going to let your mind go blank. Now, that sounds like an easy thing to do. And what you will discover if you do this for a matter of five minutes, for instance, is how insanely active your mind is. And, right. and not in a good way. You know, occasionally your, your mind will present you with this brilliant thought and you'll say, oh man, this is great. Usually it's just this constant dripping of annoying thoughts. <laughs> thoughts about what you could have done but didn't do. Thoughts about what you should do. Thoughts about what you're going to have for dinner. Thoughts about something said the day be something uh, someone said the day before. And what did they really mean by that? And was that a put down of you? And you know, if you're ever awake at two in the morning, that's the kind of thoughts <laughs> that you have. And that's just the the human condition. You know, there are are interesting neurological reasons for that. And it stems back to the fact that we're these evolved organisms and you still have within you, this is a very crude way of putting it, but you still have within you a, a reptilian component that's capable of reflexive actions, capable of anger, capable of panic. It's still there. And you still have this mammalian component that's capable of deep, deep emotions, overwhelming emotions. And it's still there and layered on top of them is your rational, the rational component of your brain. And it has to deal with those other components. And it can't deal with them by reasoning with them because they're incapable of reasoning. Your heart and gut are incapable of reasoning. So if your head says, okay, let me give you a good reason not to feel that anger, your reptilian brain is going to tell it where it can put its, <laughs> <laughs> its uh, thoughts about that. Your rational brain then has to sort of say, you know, I'm going to have to trick these other two components. I'm going to have to develop psychological strategies where I can not only prevent them from ruining my day, but I can actually harness that energy they have. Because anger, it's a, a force 12 flood of energy. And if only you could harness it. And the Stoics thought they had ways to do that. Now, in saying that, I'm not saying that a Stoic will simply suppress emotions. Stoic knows that having certain emotions is part of the human experience, and they're actually part of what makes the human experience worth having. Feelings of love. Ah, oh, wonderful. Yeah, you can get your heart broken. Yeah, but you know what? It can be very, very much worth it. So what you do is you can't help but be an emotional being. It's just built in. You can't help but be a, a being that sometimes gets angry. It's just built in. But what you can do is figure out ways 
to make the emotions work for you. Make the anger work for you. Don't let it undermine your life. I don't want to say cruel things about your heart and gut, but they're idiots. They really are. (laughs) And uh, given a chance, and you know people who are out of control because that's what they do. They just listen to what's coming from their heart or what's coming from their gut and do some very erratic things. You did identify, I just read your book, which I thought was my favorite book so far on desire. And you identify in there the fact that the things you are motivated to do are motivated by desire and emotion. And that is from that mammalian and that's from that reptilian brain. It's often not from the cold analytical part. And the cold analytical part often is a very weak force to motivate you to do these things. Emotion has the like powerful, the elephant and the rider thing. It's the emotions, the big powerful thing to harness. Yes. And you wouldn't want to live a life devoid of emotion. That would not be a life worth living. And the good news is you can't, you know, it's going (laughs) to be there. It's going to be there. I have an analogy that I use, uh, you know, back during a lockdown. Imagine that you're confined to your apartment, very small apartment. You've got two roommates and you're all confined in there together. You know, it's, it's a quarantine or whatever, and you've got to live together. One of the roommates is highly emotionally unstable, will break into crying fits at the least provocation, is full of anxieties. The other of the roommates is this person who has severe anger issues, easily upset and displays the anger. Now, suppose that you are the rational one, right? And you you say, okay, you know, we got to be here together, so we'll just make the best of it. And then you're you're drifting off to sleep when suddenly the emotional roommate comes over and says, you know, I'm really worried about something and you should be worried too. This coronavirus, it could kill us all. I'm very much worried. And then you say, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let me get some sleep here. And then you're just about to drift off to sleep. And then... The other roommate, the one with anger issues, comes over and shakes you and said, how can you sleep in a time like this? You should be angry that they're locking you up like this. Now, the interesting thing is you could maybe withstand that knowing that at the end of X number of days, you could get rid of these losers and live a nice life on your own, except the fact about your life is that you are trapped with those two roommates They live within your skull, and that's going to be the story of your life. You can never escape that skull. So they're always going to be there. So you need to come up with a strategy for dealing with them. You need to come up with a strategy for having them improve your life rather than just really upsetting you in a variety of ways, preventing you from getting sleep. And it can be done. The Stoics thought it could be done. I've experimented with them. They're brilliant strategies. The Stoics were the leading psychologists of their time, first century AD, uh, and came up with brilliant insights that only in the late 1970s did uh, modern psychologists kind of catch up on. And they kind of documented it. These are people like uh, Daniel Kahneman, Amos Mm -hmm. Tversky. They documented it. They did experiments revealing it. So they finally caught up to the Stoics, right? From 2,000 years before. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. 
At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. So you have a book, the most recent book is a little smaller, The Stoic Challenge, A Philosopher's Guide to Becoming Tougher, Calmer, and More Resilient, which focuses on one test. So if people are really excited, they could go read, which I've already read, I think I've read it twice, A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy, which really does present many more of these thought experiments and many more of these practical things. But your latest book, The Stoic Challenge, presents what you call the Stoic Test. Would you describe what this is, how it plays out, and how... It's different than, I think at one point in the book you talk about, this is not about patience. So it's not about suppressing emotion. It's about sort of redirecting it. So tell me about the stoic test. Yeah, let me first pause here to uh, Ooh, sure. put the two books you described into context. Uh, so the book, A Guide to the Good Life, was published in 2006. And it was my attempt to say to a general reading audience, hey, you owe it to yourself to take a look at Stoicism. So it's Stoicism 101. You know, it's Stoicism presented as if you had never encountered philosophy and had never encountered Stoicism. And it puts it into its historical and cultural, you know, frame. And it also describes in brief uh, form the various psychological strategies the Stoics used. The more recent book, the most recent book published in 2019 or 18 is The Stoic Challenge, and it's applied stoicism. So it isn't a general picture of what stoicism is about. It's a book written for people who experience setbacks in life. Okay, think about it. You are such a person. Some of them are tiny little setbacks. You know, you go to brush your teeth and there's no toothpaste. Uh, some of them are big setbacks. You're walking down the stairs, uh, an ankle folds, you fall, you break a hip, and they tell you, guess what? You're not going to be walking for several months. Big setback. And so life is full of setbacks. And once you start watching the setbacks you experience, you will make a profound discovery that Seneca made uh, long before you, the Roman Stoic Seneca made uh, 2,000 years ago. And that is that when you experience a setback, the thing that does you the most harm typically isn't the setback itself. It's your response to the setback. It releases a flood of negative emotions in you. And it's that flood that really does you the harm. So the analogy is when, suppose, an upstairs uh, bathroom springs a leak. You know, it's just a pipe that somehow split open and water is spewing from it. Okay, that's a setback that you have a broken pipe. So the interesting thing is, 
The damage is not that the pipe broke. The damage is all is going to come from all of the water spewing out. Because if enough of it spews out, then what's going to happen is there's going to be major flooding. Uh, the ceiling is going to collapse. So everything in the floor below is going to, to get ruined. So fixing the problem, hey, you call a plumber, you know, right? half an hour and $200 later, whatever, that problem's gone. The other problem, though, much bigger. And so that's how it is with us life setbacks. It's not the thing itself. It's your response to the thing itself. So the harm inflicted on you by a setback is typically self-inflicted. You're responsible for it. So what you need to do is develop a strategy when life presents you with a setback for containing that flood of negative emotions. Ideally, you prevent it from happening in the first place. And if some of those negative emotions leak through, like anger, you come up with a strategy, and the strategy is you nip them in the bud so they can't do the damage that they would otherwise do. So we've all know we've either been the person. Well, at some point, we've all been the person who something happens. I noticed it myself after while reading your book. I was out for a walk and I noticed myself do something that was immediate and angry. It sort of came out of nowhere. I didn't attach myself to it because I'd been reading your book and thinking about this. But normally these things happen in a split second. We don't even choose to be angry. We don't choose to be sad. We don't choose to be angry. So where is that space that happens in the stoic test where someone between the unexpected thing that happens that is upsetting or frightening or all the other things that it could do, where is the space between that and that emotional reactivity and sort of that emotional toxicity that might spread into an hour or a day or weeks. I describe in the book, I describe what I call the five second rule. Okay. <laughs> Typically the five second rule, uh, as it's uh, usually used, it's this theory that if food you're eating has fallen on the floor, as long as it you pick it up before five seconds, it's safe to eat. Don't try this at home. I don't think there's any serious <laughs> science that's been done to support that theory. So but it is a, a popular belief. But I have a, a similar thing for anger because I know, I mean, you know, I've been a practicing Stoic for uh, 15 years and I, I still can witness anger in me and how quickly it arises and the terrible things it can do. So you got to be quick is the first thing. You got to be quick. So within the first five seconds, you have to find a way to deflect that anger. And so one way to do that is to reframe the thing that happened to you. And there are many frames you can use. So one is the thing that made you angry. You can make a joke out of it. That's the, the comic uh, uh, frame. And it's really interesting to do. And also when it comes to being insulted, you know, an insult can make you incredibly angry and the anger can last for decades. Okay. So I have uh, spent time with uh, elderly people, you know, people who are losing their memory, you know, all the things that, that can go with uh, getting very old. And they can't tell you what day it is. They can't tell you what season it is. They can't tell you what city they're in right now. But they can tell you in, in excruciating detail about the time four decades before somebody insulted them. 
that's amazing. That's uh, amazing uh, staying power. So uh, what you want to do is nip it in the bud. And so one is to simply laugh it off. Uh, if somebody insults you, simply laugh it off. You know, so um, one of the examples I use in one of the books is that, you know, if somebody insults you, it's actually hard to come up with clever responses when you've been insulted, you know, unless you're really atop your game. But one kind of standard insult is to say, you know, if that's the worst thing you have to say about me, you seriously don't know me well enough to be <laughs> insulting me because there are much bigger problems that I have than that one. And you laugh it off. And the interesting thing is, it's also one of the most effective responses to an insult that there is, because the person just hit you with his best shot, you know, verbally speaking, and you just laughed it off, right? And uh, it can be a depleting thing. If you're not clever enough, or you don't memorize that, and another right. really great way to respond to insults is by just ignoring them. And uh, it's fun to do, because the person who has insulted you when you ignore it, this is my experience, they assume you, you didn't hear the insult. And then they might say, you know, I just told you that blah, blah, blah. They repeat the insult, in which case you can respond, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard you the first time. And then just go on as if nothing happened. Accomplishes two things. Uh, one, it's a really effective way to respond to an insult. And number two, it keeps the anger out of the picture. All right, because you framed it in a way where this reptilian component of your brain says, you know, a thinking part of brain is right. Uh, this really is, uh, you know, an effective technique, or this is really something to laugh about. But you got to be quick because the fires of anger, once they start smoldering, are very, very difficult to extinguish. You let them burst into flames, and it's a fire you might be fighting, not just for minutes or hours, but for decades. I was talking to someone recently about anger and about what a problem anger is. And I wondered, There's, I'll just play always the devil's advocate. So anger or complaining or gossiping about something that was bad and kind of dwelling in it gets called venting. And I think some psychologists have looked at it as a way, it's how people build intimacy when they gossip amongst themselves about stuff. And sometimes it's about their frustration and their pains. So sometimes it seems like anger could be positive or like people talk about justified anger, righteous anger. Well, that's all positive. You're, that's good anger. Do the Stoics have something when it comes to this, that five second thing to determine is this good or bad anger? Or the Stoics generally say, look, anger is not going to help you. So choose something else. Yeah. One project I have in recent years is to become a better listener. So one of the things I do, not, I don't have a stopwatch out or anything uh, like that, but I compare the percentage of time the person I'm talking to was speaking to the percentage of time that I'm speaking. And I like to uh, aim for like an 80-20 ratio where they do 80% of the speaking and I do 20%. And what you do is you ask them questions and you listen very carefully. And people respond to that in an incredible way. You should give it a try, right? Usually, our idea of conversation is, what are you doing while the other person is speaking? <laughs> right. Well, you are waiting for them to stop talking so you can reveal to them the truth or the even better things you've been doing with your time. But one of the things, so it's interesting too, because you pay attention to, so if you let other people talk, 
what do they talk about? And what you just described is one common thing. People vent. And yeah. uh, so I try to be a helpful object of venting. So let them vent and then try to make useful kinds of of suggestions, you know, where what you're trying to do is give them another way of framing it, you know, where they, they don't take it quite as as personally. You can share, oh, yeah, 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 something like that happened to me. And you know what? I just let it go because that person, eh, why would I get myself so upset over somebody like that? So you try to be helpful in that way. And, you know, another thing that the Stoics talked about was grief. They said, uh, this is Seneca, that uh, grief is uh, reflexive. You know, it's like if you get pepper up your nose, you sneeze. Grief is the same way. So you might think Stoics were incapable of grief, but Seneca says, no, we are entirely capable of grief. Two things. Number one, you should prevent grief to the extent possible. And his idea was one reason people experience grief is it's actually guilt. Yes. Grief is a very complicated emotion. So what they're actually feeling guilty about is that when the person who has died was alive, that they didn't embrace and savor that relationship. And now that the person's dead, they can't. And so it comes out in the form of grief. So when you've got somebody in your life who's important and who's alive, savor that. Savor that while it lasts because it isn't going to last forever because somebody's going to die. It might be you, it might be them. So savor that while it lasts. But if you do experience grief, Seneca said, that's perfectly understandable. It's just that there should be limits on it. So he talks about one woman who is still grieving after three years. And then again, it's one of these things where you give them psychological nudges. So you listen, you let them vent, and then you, you try to nudge them toward a more uh, gentle kind of response. And so one of the things he describes is saying, you know, the son or daughter that you lost, yes, that's tragic. And I can see how intense your grief is. But ask yourself this. Is this what your son or daughter would want you to be doing? Would they want you still grieving after three years? Or would they want you to live this life that you have to the fullest while you're still alive? So that there are these psychological nudges. Okay, so I... I've taught logic for years and years and years, but as a result of, of becoming a Stoic, I realized that logic doesn't work <laughs> for a whole bunch of things, but psychology does. So this whole notion. So now when I try to persuade somebody of something, I don't do so by means of a formal argument because, you know, they just, they ignore it. But what you can do is, is do these nudges where you plant a seed that might grow into something more useful or more helpful for them. So the goal is always to help. And then the question is, so what can I do that will allow me to help? That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetx.com.
international.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.